0: And I think what you're hitting on the is actually like the framework for how you should think about big opportunities in India, right? So this is the thing I'd actually say most Western investors, you know, just miss completely, right? So let's, if we take a step back in the early days, right, most startups, and I think I mentioned this, were built for India 1A and India 1, right? So the archetype of these companies was X for Y startups. You take a model from the US, right? You adapt it to India. So basically what we just talked about with Ola and Uber. Uh, these archetypes of startups obviously can capture a lot of value. They're proven right business models there's a proven need they just have to be adapted for a new environment but this breaks when you're building for a country where there's so much room for growth in terms of market structure right especially when you're at a technology inflection point like india and when that happens you really have to take a look at the market structure from a first principles perspective so for wise startups at best won't capture nearly as much value as if they were natively built for the market right and at worst right on the other side they just won't work Right,
1: all right, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. We've got Trung and Bilal here. Unfortunately, Jack couldn't make it today, but we have a very special guest, Ramin. Welcome to the show, man.
0: Thanks, guys, appreciate it. And I think we uh, this is the all Asia episode. I think we coordinated Jack not being here
1: today. That's it, we're talking Bollywood films cricket (laughs) only today. Well, in fact, I didn't, I got my special t shirt on today. I don't know if you guys can see that there, (laughs) but it's the show late It's normally uh, jack butcher with the much but i have to bring it out today man
2: i gotta say this blah so we've talked about this on the show previously so obviously in england the uk where you and jack are from asia refers to south asia where i'm from pacific west coast pacific northwest when you say asia you're thinking chinese hong kong taiwanese southeast asia yeah of so course. i'm asking Romain, when you hear asia what clicks in your ear is it the East Asia or South Asia?
0: I definitely don't think of you. When I think of Asia, I think of I think of Balal myself. Oh, I think yeah. that's China, the correct I think answer. There we go. We, we yeah. have to we have to caveat with an extra place for Vietnam for you.
2: Yeah, yeah the South. That's South, true. Vietnam is the same thing.
0: No, thing. no one thinks Vietnam.
2: Southeast Asia when they're saying Asia, right? Oh yeah, man, yeah. this guy looks Cambodian. No, no one thinks that. I <laughs> Indonesians and Malays, and uh, uh, they they probably guess a lot because they're a little bit darker, closer to the equator. Um, but Vietnamese are
1: not. No one's thinking about, oh man, oh, this guy looks <laughs> it's like it's like they're thinking East Asia, right? They're thinking. Well, bro, it's interesting though, Trump because in the US, if you say Asia, you do normally
0: think of like you said, Chinese. Well, yeah, yeah, Chinese, you know. uh, Japanese. What's but...
2: the with Japan and China?
0: I'd say in the US, when you think of Asia, you don't even think of Indian. Right. Like you call out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And then you you just call me Arab, even though I'm not. You know what I
1: mean? That's what people call me. That's what happens. They call me some other things, too, but it depends what time of the day is. But I I was going to say, contrastingly, in the UK, if you say Asian, like in the press, uh, we are like the brown people of Asia are the Asians there because we have a Indian, British prime minister. We have a Pakistani, uh, British mayor of London. One in five people in London look like me. Uh, as well so that's that's kind of the difference but listen man, we, I, we didn't even intro you properly so uh, Ramin tell us a little bit about your background because we all know each other from Twitter you guys have hung out in person recently uh, but yep. I'm taking this from your your Twitter bio it said bootstrapped a business to 60 mil congrats on that bought bought in PE and currently in the next leg of the journey angel invested in 75 companies and this was the kicker trying to make my parents proud that was my favorite line because that is asian mindset bro
0: that is always what we're trying to do so what else do we miss out there it's a it's a very asian mindset um that that captures it in a nutshell so so um you know grew up in in the states um from immigrant parents immigrant family so second generation or first generation for us uh but they came here with a similar like a very similar immigrant story that a lot of other folks have right came to this country with absolutely nothing In, in fact it was a a little bit wilder wilder of a story because so my dad grew up in East Africa, um, in Uganda and actually lived a, like a good middle-class lifestyle. Um, you know, his parents were, were working class, um, folks and, um, got kicked out of, uh, got kicked out of the country by Idi e. Amin, um, the brutal African dictator. Idi e. Amin specifically actually kicked out all the Indians out of, uh, East Africa. And so uh, most folks, and below you'll know this, most of these folks actually went to the UK, right? As refugees. Yeah. Um, and lot, are so, you Gujarati by any chance? I am. Yeah. yeah I I am. A lot of Gujarati wait, wait, friends hold on, who came from that Let's part. frame
2: this number. I believe the number is, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when Idi Amin kicked uh, the Indians out of uh, uh, Uganda, there's 100,000 Gujaratis. Responsible for over fifty percent of the country's GDP. Is this yeah. correct? Like ballpark. Yeah,
0: that's exactly right. Okay. Well, well, people that are listening, if you really abstract it out, if you know anything about kind of the the po- Patel hotel mafia, Patels are Godrathis, right? Yeah. And so Godrathis kind of have this street rap in India that that's the that's the clan of Indians that are really top notch at business, right? That's kind of like the street cred, right? Um, so so anyway, so my 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 grandfather was a he was a freedom fighter in India. Um, he had been jailed. Um, and and they left, uh, they left India to go to Africa. And he was working at um ExxonMobil's predecessor. It was a company called Esso Oil and working class, you know, blue-collar worker there. And it just so happened that there was a there was a merit scholarship that was made available for all the executives' children, right? You still had to compete for it, but it was basically, you know, available for the executives' children. My grandfather kind of fought his way in made a ton of noise and and basically his belief was look if, if my kid you know has a shot at this too, then my kid can can compete with the best of them, right My kid just needs a shot. Um, and so he fought his way in and so my dad was able to compete for that scholarship. Uh, a fun fact is he was one of the first people in Africa to actually take the SAT, right So this nice. was a, this was a totally wild and different time. And so what what overlapped and kind of coincided with that that period of time was, you know, he had just received a scholarship to come to the States and, you know, Idi Amin had kicked everybody out of the country. And so the entire family flew uh, to the UK as refugees. He came over to the US, you know, at 15. Um, And this is the 70s, right? There, There's no cell phones. There's no, you know, there's no family. There's no Indian restaurants. There's nothing, right? Uh, it's a completely kind of barren land. And so um when I say kind of, you know, trying to make my parents proud, you know, we're You know, he's the reason, right? And our family is the reason this immigrant kind of mentality and immigrant story is the reason that we have in comparison, you know, such an easy life, right? And so I I always try to just keep that as perspective whenever, you know, anything is difficult in business or life or whatever it might be that, you know, it's a hell of a lot harder. Um, It's a hell of a lot easier rather than showing up, you know, at 15 with no money in your pockets, not, you know, not knowing anybody and being 10,000 miles away from anybody you've ever met. Um, so we, you know, we grew up here, we grew up a, in a really comfortable, you know, a comfortable life. My, my parents, have, you know, fully lived the American dream, um, and, and it's, and they've been super supportive. And so, so my story personally is, you know, I grew up in, uh, in the States, as I mentioned in Atlanta, I spent about 10 years outside, um, for, for undergrad law school. I, I went to Duke, I went to Harvard. Um, and then, you know, I never practiced as a lawyer. And so that's probably another story for another day. Um, uh, but uh, Joint startups got really interested in business and and joined startups and uh, this last business been working on. Bilal, to your point, and, uh, you know we bootstrapped it to pretty decent scale uh, and sold a chunk of it to private equity last year and, and brought them in as partners. And then in what parallel, is that business?
2: Don't don't bury the lead. What is that
0: business? It's a it's a workforce management business. So there's a lot of online chatter kind of you know these boring businesses, right? Um, that end up actually being pretty good businesses. And I think actually most businesses, quite candidly, we get this rapid attack of like. Everything is sexy and exciting. You know, most businesses, if you think of them in the world, are just, they're they're kind of boring, right? Like they're solving a need that somebody has in the world, whether it's a consumer or an enterprise. Um, and so we help companies basically with all their workforce management issues, right? So whether it's actually staffing and recruiting and finding people, whether it's managing those people, um, and then for large enterprises, actually putting whole you know, programs around those people. So it turns out that large companies, you know, they don't spend, you know, $5 million a year, $10 million a year on workers. They spend, you know, $500 million a year, $1 billion a year on workers and workforces, right? Um, so run that business. Um, and then in parallel, do, do a ton of angel investing, as Kalal mentioned as well, right? And the angel investing is is a combination of, you know, classic tech startup investing. And it's also incubating, you know, different types of cash flow businesses, right? Um, and so uh, it's it's a lot of fun, actually, to run, you know, a kind of cash flow services business. And also have, you know, kind of needy tentacles in, in technology and software businesses because uh, there's a lot to learn, you know, from from both sides. So it's become kind of a portfolio approach, right, of uh, of different types of businesses. And and that's that's primarily what I do. Love it, man.
1: Yeah, are you still working, you and Sean working on the front together? Is that still the case? We Sean? are.
0: Yeah, we, Sean we are. Sean VP on
1: books. Twitter, Sean Puri, people know him probably from My First Million pod.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went to Duke together. We've known each other for a really long time, uh, and we partnered up together. I think about three, four years ago now. At this stage, uh, to create a little vehicle and and invest in a bunch of companies. Amazing. Um, so we we've invested in you know probably close to hundred companies now, um, and it's across sectors, across stages, uh, primarily in the U.S. Although we do, you know, I, I would say we're, we're like probably like fifteen odd percent of uh, so of what we've done has actually been in India, right? Where we're both from India originally you yourself after. up I like this that is, transition yeah, there you, oh, go. yeah you, you see
2: that you this looking was, at my
1: notes right here What's
2: this <laughs> was the raison d'etre of this podcast uh, uh, for those that are not familiar uh, Ramin uh, is quite vocal online about uh, the, the India tech scene he did a I believe a 12 or 10 or 12 podcast series episode series uh, with the Joint Colossus uh, podcast network about India Return on India and uh, that's what we're here to cook on. Uh, so, Bilal, you had lots of questions. I kind of want you to tee up meat.
1: Yeah, so I guess we can start off by talking a little bit about what people misunderstand about India. I think from my point of view, speaking to people about that region and generally Asia, people just, if they haven't spent time there, they haven't invested in that part of the world. They don't fully know the scale of change that's happened. And the perception really comes from, like, a few movies they've seen or a few random articles they've read. So so from I'll push it over to you. Like, what is the common misunderstandings and things that kind of surprise people when we talk about India as a market and a country?
0: Yeah, well, you know, you nailed it on the head, right? Like, so if you think of kind of Western, mm. you know, demographics, uh, or sorry, Western exposure, and you think over the last kind of 20, 30 years, you know what do you think of when you think of India? Right, slumdog millionaire of, comes
1: yeah. to mind for a lot of people. You
0: think of slumdog millionaire, you yeah. think of a, you think of a poo from the Simpsons. You think of, you know, outsource. You think of IT tech support, right? Um, and and look, there there's some truth to that, right? I mean, the the first generation of really great Indian companies, right, Indian tech companies, were these large outsourced IT services businesses, right? So the Infosys, the Cognizance, et cetera, of the world. And, and what they realized was it turns out that the cost structure you know in india is wildly different than america um the skill set <clears throat> is not wildly different though and so from a business perspective you can make a really good business out of saying hey you know we've got a country of a billion people it turns out they can do the same things that you guys do over there you know but we pay them you know a third of the cost or a fourth of the cost right and so uh this whole trope of kind of it tech support and the indian accent etc is because there were millions and millions of Indian IT tech workers. It also became a very common way to come to America, right? You'd come on an H-1B visa or you would basically be, you know, you get relocated from your company because you were doing, you know, an IT job. It was a monolith of kind of what is India, right? Which is ironic and interesting for a country of you know one and a half billion people, right? To think of it as kind of a monolith of one, one archetype of people. But what's changed over the last, you know, Say 15 years or so. It's it's two big things in change. So one is obviously Western exposure to India has gotten significantly significantly different, right? I mean, it's you know folks like us that live you know here in the states have grown up in the states, etc. We don't have accents. We assimilate into the culture, right? And so there's the very natural kind of um, you know exposure in that way. In the Indian startup ecosystem, I think this is probably more important though. The last 10 years have been this kind of catalyst of uh, for growth, right? There's been more change. I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years. And there's been you know in the prior prior 100 odd years or so it may seem like a little bit of an exaggeration but but here's why right so over the last five years I'd say there's really been over the last 10ish years I'd say there's really five things that have really kind of spurred this catalyst so the first is demographics right um so India has a lot of people like we just talked about but what is often not known about India is India has over 500 million people under 25. So when you think of China and you think of kind of a demographic age bomb that they're going through, right? They might have the same number of people, but they're going through a huge demographic age bomb with the one-child policy. India has 500 million people under the age of 25. It's a massive, massively youthful economy. Of those 500 million people, over 125 million of them speak English. So what most people don't realize and most people don't know is they think that Hindi right, is the national language of India. It's not. English is the national language of India, right? So you have this extremely young, you know, demographic and they all speak English. number one, number two is we can double click into this a little bit, but Reliance Geo did something really interesting, you know, six, seven years ago as well with the Reliance Geo. Basically what they did was the cost of internet, um, and internet accessibility, the cost of internet was very high and internet accessibility was really low, right? And what they did was they said, you know what, what we're going to do is we're going to absolutely slash the price of the internet. And what that's going to enable and allow, it's going to allow for a massive surge of online users. So there's over 830 million people in India that use the internet today. This is up almost, you know, hundred percent over the last couple of years. There's 860 million smartphone users, which is similarly up, you know, over hundred percent in the last four or five years. and then the most interesting one is there's over, you know, the, the amount of data consumption that takes place on a monthly basis has a hundred X in the last decade right? So you, so you have this young population that speaks English. You brought all of them online, right? And then from an economic perspective, you have two things going on. One is you have a significant amount, you have increased purchasing power that's happening in that base of young people, right? So, um, you know, over 500 million people, right? Uh, the predictions are over 500 million people by 2025 are going to be in the middle class in India. Now, those numbers are different, but it means that there's real consumption power and real purchasing power. And then foreign direct investment has shot into the country, right? So one of the latest news stories people are probably familiar with is Apple, you know, you, you see this kind of image shot of Tim Cook walking in India. And the headline is Apple is opening up, you know, really big manufacturing facilities for the iPhone to diversify themselves away from China. Right. And so the amount of foreign direct investment that's come into the country, you know, has been significant as well. So when you, when you tie all these things up in terms of you have young people, they speak, you know, they speak English. They're more assimilated, I'd say, with U.S. and Western culture than, than China is. For example, you have this massive surge of people that are coming online. Other countries are taking notice and pumping money into the economy. People inside in the economy themselves are are bringing themselves up, you know, out of poverty and out of you know the lower tiers of economic power. It sets off this catalyst effect. Now, you know, tech valuations, et cetera, have obviously reset, um, but you had you know fifty unicorns in 2021, right? Hit, for example, right questionable how many of those are still unicorns, but it speaks to the broader thesis and broader idea, which is, you know, people are really excited about India, right? The markets are large, the talent is great, um, and the the velocity of movement and companies being built is is significant. So it's it's a really exciting time. It's it's really, this this change, though, has come into effect over the last decade, right? Yeah, and for sure. And this
2: is why the number one YouTube channel is T-Series, right? Is. The, oh, in, yeah. yeah. Well, with, well, wow, you probably curious. remember the... So, Blau used to work at YouTube. You probably saw that Indian usage going up and up and up. What, what was, mad, the, what was yeah. that YouTube talk like about around India?
1: No, I think it was similar because it was through that stage where you do I think you said 800 million smartphone users, right? And that was yep. happened mainly in the last 10 years. So, a yep. lot of those are probably Android, I'm assuming, yep. as well, even though uh, iPhone probably a decent chunk of it there. So, yeah, I think it was always a big, I, I didn't realize it was the biggest one until more recently. I don't know if that's still the case or if it's changed, but I remember to see, like, for example, one of my friends from the UK is a musician. His name is Zach Knight. And uh, he and I, I met him just as he starting his music career. And he's like, oh, I'm st- sing a single songwriter. And I'm like, yo, that's, that's cool you're doing that. But, like, your parents are definitely not happy about this one because he wanted <laughs> him to be a doctor, you know, standard. And then I, I look back a year later, this guy hit number one song in India. And I go to T-Series. It's on, hosted on T-Series. It's like over a billion views for this one song and maybe more than that like it's it's crazy. The scale You're of it is crazy. You're sleeping on him,
2: boy. You're sleeping on your boy.
1: I know, I know. I always believed in him, always believed, but you know, it's it's pretty incredible. It's and and but but it's actually a really interesting point Ramin, because he's a British Pakistani guy actually. Um and the girl he made the song with was an Indian British girl, um Jasmine Walia and it is interesting that you said about the cultural difference. So one of the things in your tweet thread, you said India's 30 countries in one. I'd love yeah. to go into that a little bit more because that combined with the fact you said about the knowledge of the international culture, of like you, in your thread, you talked about um, they watch Friends, Seinfeld, like all these shows yeah. we grew up watching as well. That has yeah. been exported a lot there and they love American Western culture. So I'm curious to understand a little bit more about like things people might not know, even beyond the business side, just you mentioned the the language, for example, like, I don't know how many languages there are, but there's
0: probably like hundreds of dialects and stuff, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I I think the interesting thing, again, kind of, it goes back to the India as a monolith concept, right? So, you know, India has 1.4 billion people, right? And it has, you know, these, you know, let's say these, you know, round numbers, 30 states, right? Each of these individual locations, there was an interesting map actually that was going on around Twitter, I'll find it and send it to you guys, which was
2: Oh, I saw that Indian grammar posted it, right?
0: If you yeah. take a percentage of the world's population and you thought of every individual Indian state, right? So you literally have Indian states that on their own, you know, would be a percent of the world's population, right? And so when you think about it like that, right, you say, well, wait a minute, you know, it turns out that there are different cultures, there are different, um, you know, there are different festivities, there are different religions, there are different language, there's different customs, et cetera is really that they're just geographically tied uh, together, right But other than that there's significant change and there's significant differences right um, in, in those locations themselves. India the the interest the more interesting way to think about India rather than even just the 30 individual states, which by the way, I think is why actually a lot of Indian founders don't get as overwhelmed by this concept of international expansion. So a very common trope or a very common question is hey how do you expand internationally, et cetera. And a bunch of founders had told me either when I was investing in them or talking with them, they said, look, just to expand in India itself, it's like we're going into 50 countries. Right. And so this idea of kind of when, when we go outside from India and into somewhere else, we're not, we're not nearly as you know, concerned, bothered, you know, overwhelmed by it. Because when we go, when we expand into a different state, you know, we have to go into a different language, we have to go around different festivals, we have to go around different customs, you know, we can't offend this person, we can't offend that person, we have to think about this dynamic, et cetera. Right. And those nuances are actually very, very deep and very, very different, right, comparatively than than abroad. The way I think about India, which I think is probably the more constructive way to think about India, is there's actually four Indias in one. Okay. So it's India 1A, India 1, India 2, India 3. So India 1A is very, very small set of people. It's about 25 million people. And these are below these are the people that you were just mentioning. Right. This is really what most people think of when you think of consumer India. So highly advanced, you know, highly adept to Western culture and products, native English speakers, right? Good purchasing power, et cetera. India one is a broader group. It's like 25 to let's say hundred million with a per capita income of, you know, about $10,000 per year. Right. Um, and so most, you know, most companies that kind of build, most startups that build for India, they build for India 1A and India one, that's where all the purchasing power in the country is India two, is the next 100 million people this is like the most exciting cohort of 100 million people they're digitally affluent right they're online they're a part of those stats that i mentioned earlier they're starting to come into some purchasing power but they're not quite there in terms of actually being able to purchase in a way that's meaningful you know kind of for let's say western startups western companies and then you have india 3 which is basically the entire country right it's like 1.2 billion people right and and these are the people that, you know, they don't have the purchasing power yet. They're just starting to come online, right? This is kind of what you think of when you think of poor India. Now, the flip side of that, and this is what you know what's really interesting, is just imagine as that 1.2 billion gets brought up, right? India, India 1A, India 1, India 2, et cetera, right? Then the possibilities are are significant. In in fact, when you start thinking of what types of companies should be built, you know, or what would do really well in India. It's also why you kind of see this trajectory of the initial cohort of companies that did really well in India were these kind of like extra Y companies, right? Like you built, you have Ola in India, which is like the Uber for India. Makes a ton of sense because India, one A is only twenty-five million people, right? They're basically modul, mo- like modulating and emulating their life around you know the West. Below well, you made a comment, right, of one thing that I said in the thread, which is, hey, these people grew up, you know, watching Friends or Seinfeld or so on and so forth. That is the big culture shock, right, for people when they go back to India, is India youth from India 1A, I mean, you literally, especially in a Zoom world, you could not tell that this person is in India versus, you know, in California, right?
2: Like, they just watched but, Oppenheimer. They got thoughts about Cillian Murphy and yeah, Nolan's directing.
0: right? And, like, forget the accent part, et cetera. Like, there is, a, for a lot of these people, there is no accent, right? They grew up in English medium schools, et cetera. You legitimately, you talk about Western culture, Western movies, et cetera. You sound would more English know, than me at times. Yeah, yeah, you, you would I'm not, not know to, the difference. Yeah. You would not know the difference at all, right? Um, which is super powerful. It also speaks to another, you know, kind of reason why I think India will assimilate a lot better than like, let's say China or so. But you just cannot tell the difference, right? So I think when you think about India, like the right way to think about it is really think about it as these four Indias, right? Um, that's really the way you should think about the consumer economy. Somebody had put it really well to me was when you actually segment these these um, you know these archetypes, you can actually start thinking of parallels like you know India one A or or India one is kind of like a Mexico, right? And then you know the next segment is like the Philippines, right? So you can kind of start thinking about analogous countries in the world to actually map to, to India. But it's it's incredibly diverse, it's incredibly large, incredibly you know heterogeneous, um, and and uh, and that's that's what makes it really exciting.
1: You know that the, the um, you mentioned the under twenty five population being five hundred million. Yeah, I'm wondering out of those one a one two and 3, uh, maybe I missed one, but the four groups of people. Sure. I'm assuming majority of those are in the last bucket just because of the size of the bucket, but a lot of those people in the other ones too.
0: Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them are in India three for sure. Um, I don't have the numbers quite off the top of my head, but I do what I do know and what I experienced both from going to India as well as kind of doing that you know, podcast series was the folks that are in India 1A right though. I mean, those consumers can really spend, right. So if India one is kind of 10 K per year, I don't know what the per capita is for India 1A, but these are the people that, you know, especially the top runs of, of that India 1A, you know, they're purchasing just like a normal, you know, American pricey consumer, right. Which is actually what is, you know, flowing a lot of, you know, funds through the economy, right. Is you actually have a consumer class, you know, that can really spend. And so you you mentioned kind of like that massive
1: change in the last 10 years. So when, you know, we have to mention every once a week, I worked at Google, he already talked about YouTube, but one of the things at Google that was, was a kind of focus for us was uh, uh, the next billion users, right? Like the next billion coming from India and a lot of Asia and Africa. Um, And, and what we found was like you said there, like some companies and startups are going and saying, all right, we're just going to make the Uber, the Airbnb, the whatever for this region. And there are yep. some successful use cases. But what we actually found, the most interesting examples is where they skipped that middle part and created something native for that region. And this isn't just in India, it's in a line of Africa as well. Um, and so I'm curious if you've got any examples of what that looks like in a mobile-first native uh, kind of of mold in India of, of companies that are coming out of there.
0: Yeah. So there's a ton of examples. I'll give one specifically. Um, and I think what you're hitting on below is actually like the framework for how you should think about big opportunities in India, right? So this is the thing I'd actually say most Western investors, you know, just miss completely, right? So let's if we take a step back, in the early days, right, most startups, and I think I mentioned this, were built for India 1A and India one right? So the archetype of these companies was X for Y startups. You take a model from the U.S., right? You adapt it to India. So basically what we just talked about with Ola and Uber. Uh, These archetypes of startups obviously can capture a lot of value. They're proven, right? Business models. There's a proven need. They just have to be adapted for a new environment. But this breaks when you're building for a country where there's so much room for growth in terms of market structure, right? Especially when you're at a technology inflection point like India is. And when that happens, you really have to take a look at the market structure from a first principles perspective. So expert wise startups at best won't capture nearly as much value as if they were natively built for the market, right? And at worst, right on the other side, they just won't work, right? So a really good example of this is a company I invest in this company called Shiprocket. Um, these guys are doing hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, hundreds of millions of US dollars of ARR, right? Um, so absolutely, you know, a, a flyaway kind of success in the Indian tech landscape. The first idea these guys wanted to build was they wanted to build Shopify for India, right? So their idea was very simple, right? You look in the rest of the world, this whole e-commerce thing is taking off. So why can't we do e-commerce in India, right? Um, and and if you follow all the top level things we just talked about, you get really excited about e-commerce in India. You'd say there's these billions of users, they're all coming online, you know, et cetera. So they toiled around with it, you know, for years and, and were banging their heads on the wall. And they actually, the, the company name, I believe the company name initially was actually Cart Rocket. Right. So the idea was really, we're going to build a Shopify, you know, for, for India. Turns out that what they realized was it doesn't matter if you build a Shopify for India and you bring people online to purchase because there's no economical way to actually get the products to them. Right. So Shopify for India just doesn't work because I can get Trung and Bilal and Ramin and everybody can say, Hey, I want that, you know, Bollywood jacket that Shahrukh Khan wore in this, you know, latest film but there's literally no way to get that jacket to them. You're talking right?
2: about roads and like infrastructure
1: and logistics. Yeah, there's yeah, no it's infrastructure. like
0: a logistics issue. Yeah, can make, there's a massive sense. logistics issue. So what they built instead was they built a courier aggregation business, right? So their idea was, well, you know, what, what it turns out for most of these really small mom and pops is shipping is not economical for them. They have to charge an arm and a leg. And so the consumer can't pay that arm and leg, right? And so they just don't buy. So the consumer might come online but they're just not actually gonna buy. So what they said is they said, look, Let's take, you know, sh- certainly some of the main kind of shipping players. There's no, you know, USPS corollary, FedEx corollary, et cetera, but at least some of the main, you know, larger players. And then let's pair that with the entire local delivery system. So one of the funny things, below, you'll know this, you know, when you go to India or so, for example, right, or Pakistan, it's, it's all the same. You, if you go, you ask somebody for directions on the street. They're not going to tell you that, you know, take a left at, um, you know, Dalmore Drive and, you know, <laughs> Woodbury Lane, et cetera. They're going to say, go straight. You're going to see this guy standing on the road with a cart of milk, take a right there. Then go down a little bit further and you're going to see this like, you know, kind of like half farm, et cetera, take, take a right there, right? Yeah, that's points how, of interest, yeah, yeah. Points of interest, right? It's not street signs and, and kind of infrastructure, et cetera. Now, you know, Google Maps, et cetera, has gotten significantly better, but, and 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 kind of brought some of that infrastructure to the country, which helps- Right. And mobile helps in that too. But a lot of this is still kind of last mile is still very, very challenging in countries like this. It's very, very different. Right. So what these guys said is they said, look, let's build a courier aggregation business where we can basically end to end, you know, from larger shipping to, to more regional shipping to kind of all the way to last mile. You know, we've built out this system where any e-commerce company can plug into it. And because of that massive amount of scale, they can get economic prices. So they can run their businesses, consumers don't have to pay an arm and leg. And it turns out that if we build the railroads, right, or the rails, right, then we're actually going to power e-commerce infrastructure in the country, right? Because otherwise there's just no way to do it, right? And so, you know, that business has become a massive business. It will go public in India one day. It will continue to be a really well-run, you know, a big business as long as it's well-run, but there's no analog for that in Western markets. So imagine coming to, you know, Silicon Valley and pitching that, Hey, we are going to build, you know, this courier aggregation business. And you know, a bunch of Harvard and Stanford VCs are like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. But why don't you build Shopify for India? Right. Yeah. And so this is the disconnect, right? The disconnect is like, you, you hear that kind of idea and it doesn't even compute. Like the first five times I heard that idea and I spent a bunch of time with Scythold, the founder, I just like, didn't understand. Cause in my head, I was like, well, why doesn't USPS just do this? Like, well, it turns out there is no USPS, right? Um, And so that's the and then you have to unpack all the layers of like why it's not just like obvious to say you can go build a USPS for India to build a USPS for India. It's a completely different, you know, thing that you have to build. So, you know, when you take a step back and you just think about how many foundational pieces are really yet to be built, right? So, for example, the number of unbanked people in the country, right, that aren't appropriate, appropriately served or the fact that credit markets are super nascent, right? So there's 1.4 billion people in the country. Trung, how many how many credit cards do you think exist in the country?
2: This is from your thread. Um it's under 10%, Pop, is please. this right?
0: Less. So you're you're around 10% below how many do you think? I can't remember from the thread either, but yeah, I I
1: think it's yeah, probably around l- less than 10% because of trust. I think of the trust issue. They they might not yeah. trust credit cards. They might and so yeah, it's just, 2% Two percent,
2: thirty million. What's, credit. A, what's the number? What's the number in in uh, uh, in the uh, United States?
0: 30, 30 million credit cards. Oh, in the U.S., I'm not sure, but it's um, fifty. Uh, it's
2: probably 70 percent. Right? Yeah, exactly. yeah,
0: right. There's so, no
2: credit. This was my this was mind blowing. That's it. There's almost like no functioning credit system in India,
0: or there yeah. is, but it's, it's 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 for the very small sliver at the top. Very very small. My there's, 30, there's thirty million credit cards in the country in a country of one and a half billion people, and and just think about fundamentally the effect of credit, right? I mean. Why do you use credit? You literally credit is correlated with growth of an economy. You literally cannot grow an economy without credit, right? Otherwise, you're matching up all your pay cycles. Um, it's a time so, machine. It's
2: the whole point. Time machine.
0: Bringing the bringing the world future like forward, literally through the use of credit, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of really interesting ideas to be built. The right way to think about what are the biggest ideas going to be is it's not going to be the Uber for India, the Airbnb for India. There's another idea, which is uh, or another example of this, which is really interesting, which is a company called Mama Earth in India. And Mama Earth has turned into one of the fastest, you know, DSE companies in India. I think they had like a hundred million in revenue in like three or four years or so. And started out mostly as insect repellent, right? Just doesn't make sense in the rest of the world, right? Like these types of brands, like how big is the market? How quickly would they you know, emerge, et cetera. And then all the skincare products and the beauty products that they created were not emulations of what else is there in the world, right? They were skincare products for, you know, Indians with darker skin, lighter skin, so on and so forth, right? And they really spoke to the local market itself. So I think the biggest, I think you nailed it on the head below with this kind of idea of like, well, why does Google focus on next billion? Or, you know, how do you really think about kind of value capture in these markets? The real value capture is, kind of, you know, for these ecosystems and markets, you know, themselves. The Romain, last, what was the value? yeah, the last said? part you said it cut he off said at the keeper. the key value part. capture so, is oh, something.
2: God. Yeah, Wait, yeah. No, We're leaving all this in because it's hilarious. Yeah, the part yeah, that yeah. Behind the, the scenes, one, there you go. This guy was giving alpha, bro. Me was giving three alpha, and the the value capture, the meaning of life is blank. And it said I bet a Wi-Fi
1: doesn't go out yeah. in India like it
0: doesn't in right uh, Yeah, The Wait, Wi-Fi right. doesn't go out in India. I think this what is what was
2: what was the value capture part.
0: The value capture, yeah. So the va- the value capture that's there for like for, for investing in Indian companies is looking at basically these native use cases. Okay. Right? So that's that's amazing. where the real opportunities are gonna okay. come. The real opportunities are not gonna come from just trying to put a Western model. Yeah. And, that's you know, amazing. Figure, I love that. I love the that, ship yeah.
2: rocket's actually a perfect example of uh a, a, yeah. like the market structure developing and how different it is. Uh but there's something that I don't want to forget this because I saw it in Bilal's notes. Uh you brought up something super interesting for me. Is like, think, okay, so let's set the framework. You're saying, you know, this is the demographics, uh, super attractive. But then you brought up a very interesting sociological perspective. Is like, the uh, India is actually not a huge consumer society relative to America, yeah. for example. They, they, as in this country, and again, this is calling, again, a monolith. is not correct, but yep. long-term assets. Can you explain uh-huh. this idea of longer-term assets? Which is what a lot of Indian consumers—they're not consuming in the way that we might expect. Um, and actually, in-
1: Ramin, just to add one five-second wrinkle on that too—is you also said Indian consumers are more like CFOS than CMOS. So yeah. just to build on top of that, I think that's related.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's so there's a lot. So there's a lot there. So let's try to unpack it. So so one is culturally, right? Indians are very, very different consumers, right? so the the way that you know the way that india thinks about or indian consumers think is they spend a lot of money on what they perceive as what what you guys just called these long term assets right so that's education health real estate gold right so almost 20% of the world's gold is actually held by indian retail consumers right which not, made, not many incredible, people realize, not it yeah it's people. incredible now when indians actually think to purchase, right? There's an opposite side of this of when you're forming a business, how do you think about the Indian consumer, right? So we can talk about that a little bit. That also, that ties into kind of my perspective on why super apps, et cetera, work in Asian countries and they don't work, you know, at all in US countries. And I think the latest example of somebody trying to build a super app is Elon and Twitter. So we can talk a little bit about some of those parallels. Um, but Indian consumers themselves are exactly, you know, below to what you, what you mentioned that I framed was, Indian consumers are more like CFOs than they are CMOs, right? So they're very careful with their money. They're very prudent. They're constantly trying to save money. CMOs are dream dreamers, storytellers, you know, brand conscious, et cetera, right? And as you see this kind of westernification of happening of the consumer class, you see Indians moving more and more to being like CMOs as, to, as opposed to CFOs, right? Um, where they are extreme CMOs, is not just long-term assets, but the long-term assets aside, like, because that really speaks to more of a savings culture. But where do they actually spend the money? It's two archetypes: they spend the money on education, healthcare, and weddings. And when they spend the money on education, healthcare, and weddings, it's like a massive knockout punch, right? So on weddings, for example, there are in, Indians will spend ten to twenty times their annual earnings on weddings. It's, right. it's it's insane. Crazy. That's insane, right? right? Like, it's just totally a, crazy if you think about no, it. And it, and
2: it. Hold on a second. I, I'm gonna ask objectively.
0: Yeah, that's I'm not crazy.
2: Moralizing That is yeah. not a good use of money.
0: Yeah. And so well it it's, speaks to this yeah. broader it speaks to this broader cultural. cultural thing notion, too. too. Right? It's yeah. a cultural thing. So it, it speaks to this broader cultural notion, which is actually really interesting when you look at individual like SKUs or specific products. So if if I told you where do you guys think the gross margins are higher when you're creating products that are selling to Indian consumers? Do you think it's on collective products, right? Or do you think it's on individual products? I and mean, what do I mean by that? So individual products are like, you know, a Rolex watch, for example. It's for you, the individual, right? Collective is, you know, for for family, for society, et cetera. Where do you think the gross margins are higher? Collective. Significantly um, higher.
2: Okay, so wait, are you pushing back on me saying objectively this is a bad use? Okay, yeah, well, I am wrong. Well, I'm agreeing with you. I'm okay. agreeing
0: with you. I'm just saying there is a deep, deep kind of cultural, you know, imprint that is very difficult to which is this idea of it actually it actually goes to i think a really strong strength of the country which is the country is highly communal versus individualist Mm, yeah because it's communal right what you actually see is like for example right very classic thing when you renovate a high-end home in america is you go to the master bathroom and it's unbelievable right that's a very individual notion right example a very individual notion of consumerism marble, if you think about marble, marble floors, <laughs> marble gold hats. eighty-seven chow yeah. that are happening that you're <laughs> never going to use. It's it's the it's the epitome of individualistic culture because who is spending time in that bathroom, right? Only you. Whereas Indians, if you go to any Indian person's living room, so with like, Trung writes it, they, his best threads. To be fair, yeah. I'm sure well, that's, that, 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 concentration that is time. Yeah. that is definitely true. So,
2: in Indian living rooms, are
1: bowling.
0: If you look at Indian living rooms yeah. compared to Indian individual rooms, they're bigger, they're more stacked out, right? There's more products there, et cetera. you got that chandelier
1: dripping from the, from the ceiling,
0: yeah. You know? It speaks to this very kind of core idea of, you know, when there's community or there's something to show people, Indians will spend a lot of money. And when it's upon themselves, individualistically, they actually won't spend a ton of money, right? So this this notion of kind of the Indian consumer, understanding that the Indian consumer is more like a CFO than a CMO, it's actually really interesting to figure out kind of where do you play. Now, The the there's two other components of this. So one is this kind of CFO-CMO ratio is changing wildly, right? So if you actually look at, you know, Indians, even from a uh, a body type, a physique perspective, et cetera, why are, you know, why are people in Asian countries typically skinnier, or smaller, et cetera? It actually turns out that there's, you know, lack of commercialization around fast food. Right. And so as you see fast food or you see more kind of Western kind of uh, ideals actually infiltrate the country, you actually see a lot of the you know same types of issues, et cetera, that, you know, people in the U.S. have with health. Right. And so the CMO, CFO concept is changing significantly with Westernization of culture. Um, so that's one thing that's that's interesting in the Indian consumer. The other thing that's interesting in the Indian consumer, let's we'll talk about this kind of from the flip from a business perspective. Right. So if you're actually building a business, how do you think about the Indian consumer? You have to build horizontally versus vertically. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the Indian consumer base itself is not deep enough from a wallet perspective to spend loads of money, right? So in America, you can build one individual idea and go into a consumer, right? And they're going to spend, you know, they're going to spend galore right on the product or on the service that you have. In India, that just can't, that's not the case based on the India four, like the four categories of India we were talking about earlier. So what happens? What happens in India is you have, you have large conglomerate companies that basically they, ba- you know, build everything under the sun, right? From your cars to your internet, right? The tatas, the reliances, et cetera, is the world. And so what they do is they say, you know what? We can't go deep with any one individual consumer, right? In terms of, you know, just Wi-Fi or just car or just you know, X, Y, Z. Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go identify Trump and we're gonna sell Trump literally everything he buys. Everything. I want
2: the Tata lassi. Yo, give me the Tata car. Give me the Tata lassi. Give exactly. me the Tata jeans. I want all that Tata. You'll have all of it. It <laughs> will all
0: literally be from one brand, right? Or Reliance or so on and so forth, right? And so it's it's pretty interesting, uh, it, you know, when you when you think about the way that large businesses are built in India, it's actually, you know, for for Indian startups, you know, and this goes very, you know, very opposite of what the typical advice or focuses for startups is, you know, focus is key, focus is key. That's a very Western principle, right? Because if you just focus on one kind of small thing, it turns out there's not that many, you know, significantly sized markets in India, at least from a monetization perspective, not from a usage perspective. You can get a billion Indian users, right? If in America, somebody showed you a consumer app with a billion users, you'd get super excited. You'd be like, this is unbelievable. This is literally Facebook, Right. You can get hundreds of millions of users in India, right? And it's never going to convert, right, into actual dollars. And so when you're building, you know, when you kind of think about from the from the businesses perspective, this is why you kind of have these like conglomerate businesses, you know, India itself. So a lot is changing in terms of the consumers themselves, how they mentally think a lot is also changing in terms of how, you know, businesses are, are building. Obviously, as that Westernization happens, businesses can go narrower and narrower. But the biggest businesses in India are very much so the ones that are built, you know, for these horizontal use cases.
2: I think a great yeah. example of uh, of this. sort a super quick point here is uh, whenever you look at these earnings calls from like Netflix or like Facebook, yeah. it's like ARPU average revenue user. United States thirty bucks, and it's like India is like fifty cents. I think that's just like that always gets me right. It's just like uh, I, I think the Disney Plus example is a great one because when they said they had a hundred million users in whatever six to twelve months. It was like yep. 50 million users are from Hotstar India, right? It's like like the ARPU is like under a buck for that. But uh, yep. anyways, blah. Sorry. No, that's
1: a really good point. I think the, the stuff you talked about, like the cultural nuance there, the, even earlier, the kind of last mile logistics, like these are all things you won't know unless you start studying and spending time in the market. So the the other thing you mentioned, I love the framing around CFO versus CMO. Um, you, you mentioned the CFOs, they care about, uh, th- you've done a couple threads on this, but this one you wrote about education, health, real estate, and gold. I think you yep. gave a different example a second ago. Uh, the yep. gold, I do want to dig into that just because it's an incredible stat, right? Like uh, almost yeah. 20% of the world's, um, what is it? It, the world's gold is held by Indian retail consumers. And I yep. think in our world, in tech, especially with the cryptocurrency discussion and Bitcoin being framed as a digital gold, and being this long st- long-term store of value narrative that we've seen in the last few years here, you can argue if that's real or not, but even the CEO of BlackRock has started using that phrase. I'm curious what you think about the the perception of cryptocurrencies and something like a Bitcoin becoming something in the long run there, because just from my perspective as NF1, a lot of this is not just to do with, oh, I'm going to h- hold gold in my you know safe at home. This is aunties like my mom wearing gold at the weddings balling out and then also it's a dowry thing right And when when yeah. someone gets married you give this this gold as a dowry so uh, i'm curious your perception of that someone who's actually spent more time in the market
0: yeah that, i mean that's that's right right so this idea i think i think this is kind of like a western this is a great example of a western trope so western trope would be okay you have 20 percent of the world's uh you know 20 percent of the world's goal of, In hands of Indian retail investors Indians clearly like gold you know what we could do is we could create a digital gold and that's gonna really take off right and what that misses is the exact kind of cultural attenuation that you spoke to right which is it turns out that well let's ask ourselves from first principles why do Indians love gold right one part of it absolutely is a a social uh, piece right the other part of it is a religious piece right so if you think of, you know, Hindu mythology and you think of all the gods, et cetera, they are lathered in gold, right? And so there's a lot of religious symbolism to gold itself. I, I don't think you're going to sit down for, you know, a puja or celebrate Diwali and you're going to put out your cryptocurrency wallet. Like, that's not going to happen,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: right? And yeah. So, um, I, wait, you know, unless it's a
2: hard wallet that's plated in gold.
0: Right, There exactly. we go. That, that's a hard wallet that's, plated that's in gold. And then congratulations! Ledger, get, on that, get on that. And then, and then, congratulations! You just created a brick of gold and defeated the purpose of having <laughs> cryptocurrency. <laughs> so, the, I mean the, the uh, the the you know the importance of gold is is really deeply cultural, right? I, I think from a you know, look, I'm not a crypto expert, but what I can say is from a regulatory perspective, you know, India has India is not nearly the friendliest country in the world for crypto, um, and so I think it's going to be really really challenging right, in terms of, you know, young Indians adopting, you know, crypto generally, I think even if they do adopt crypto, it's going to be very different than kind of for this analogy of like digital gold, right? I think gold holds a very specific, you know, cultural importance, Mm -hmm. cultural place in Indian society, in Indian culture, um, which is, you know, culturally backed, religiously backed, socially backed, right? And that's very, very difficult to change. Yeah. And just one other piece of context I'll
1: share is just, again, from my perception being Pakistani, very similar cultures obviously, though there's some differences with you know, obviously there's lots of Muslims in, in India, I think even more Muslims in India than the whole of Pakistan's population but, yeah. you know, Pakistan is primarily a, a Muslim country but there is this similarity in kind of mindset when people get married it's like two families coming together and you kind of have had that in the West in the past, but I think we've moved much more to an individualistic culture here which is more about oh, these two people coming together and there is a little bit about the families coming together but in in our cultures is the families are like have a massive say they're the ones host they're you're hosting the other family um like stuff like that so there's just a very big difference and i think the the like even in islamic religion there is a dowry part of that when you're getting married too so there's a lot of things there that I think people would miss with that. Um, the last couple of things I wanted to add, and then I know Tron probably had other questions as well, was just uh, this one really surprised me, was the consumers are primarily men. Uh, you said less than 7% of the urban female population has independent final income. Just for contrast, that's 90% in China. So just the that's complete... Crazy. It's that's crazy. That's crazy, right? Even in the West, I think when you're targeting, if you're selling a product for the home or you're... Oh, it's you know, the, just mom- the the decision is consumer. being made primarily yeah. by by the woman in the house, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think this is what speaks to, like, how do you build products and where do you have to target, you know, in India, right? right? So <clears throat> less than 7% of the urban female population has independent financial income, right? Staggeringly low compared to China. You know, all financial products, credit cards, all loans, investments, et cetera, they're all, you know, bought by men. Uh, one one of the things that one of the founders in India uh, shared with me that was really surprising was, 50% of shopping on female fashion portals in India have men shopping for their significant others. That's incredible, right? right? They're um, trying and, to get those pat you
2: know, jeans, dude. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> jeans.
0: And so India is <laughs> probably, you know, one of the only countries in the world where the fashion spend of men is more than women's, right? And other That's markets- That's mind-boggling. Women's fashion spend is 5 to 7x that of, of men. So I think it speaks to, you know, again, how do you have to build products and how do you have to think? Now, you know, one, one conclusion from what I just said would be, Oh, it's an attractive market to build, you know, for women, it could, you know, in many senses, it's the complete opposite. You can really, really corral very strong brand power as well, you know, because there is that, you know, disproportionate skew, um, in independent income and in, and in consumer spend, Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's very interesting that this is, these are the types of interesting nuances when you dig in, you know, beyond kind of the monolithic idea of India's, you know, billion and a half people or so, these are the exact types of nuances, et cetera, that you start to see.
2: So for the listeners, uh, thank you so much for the India alpha. There's a lot there. Uh, ledger, go make that gold plated hard wallet. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. so, so I, I do want to point our uh, listeners to the, uh, we'll have it in the show notes, but return on India was a podcast series. Um, I would say this. I, I would say listen to the last episode first, actually, the Romain, uh, uh on reviewing India's opportunities. I don't know if you agree with that, but Romine basically uh, uh, recaps everything he did over the series. He was on the ground uh, for a lot of these interviews. Uh, he's got some crazy ones. And uh, our, our friend Matt wrote so from uh, Colossus uh, interviewed him for that last one. Um, but do you have any episodes from your series that you would point people to?
0: I think if you're interested in emerging economies, just generally, you know, like India, I think is, is one of the most interesting ones. But if you're thinking about investing globally or uh, just emerging countries, I think the best yeah, the best couple would be uh, one I did with this guy named Sajat Pai, who's at Bloom Ventures in India. Really, really great, um, you know, thinker um, and really has some great frameworks on how to think about the country in parallels to other countries. So that one was one that I think was really foundational to if you're trying to understand the country. The second one, which I feel so fortunate I was able to do, was with this guy named Nandan Nilakani. So Nandan Nilakani was the founder of Infosys. Billionaire founder of Infosys, incredibly humble, um, incredibly important second act in his career, which is serving as India's CTO. So a lot of what actually kickstarted started uh, India's progress and a lot of what these startups are relying on, things like UPI, the United Payments Center, Universal Payments Interface, uh, the Aadhaar card, which gave identity, digital identity to everybody in India, uh, um, was his doing and his founding in collaboration with the government. Um, and so that was a really interesting episode on what's possible. You know, when you think of scale, and when you think of kind of you know private market expert piece and and you know public, uh, public sector actually partnering. Um, there were two other ones that I thought were were like were notably really interesting as well. One was with um, this guy named Kunal Shah. Who founded a company called Cred? Their last round was five, six billion or so. Uh, but one of the popular fintech companies in India. Very a lot of these kind of uh, subtle social insights came from him, and and I think were really interesting. Uh, and then there was a um, there was a not, there was a deep dive episode actually with the Shiprocket founder, and I thought that was okay. a really good example if you wanted to go really deep, kind of on that example we talked about and get a good understanding of again just abstracting as a framework right for when you're thinking about investing in another country how do you think about a native use case you know for that country that was a really good kind of real real life example it was it was a lot of fun uh matt patrick o'shaughnessy the colossus team um are great they were great to collaborate and partner with um, you know on that series and um you know i think we we heard from folks that listened to the whole series that you know certainly if you were interested in india i think it was it was interesting and even if not and you were interested in other Kind of investing in other emerging markets you know there are a lot of parallels that you can draw it's from. a
2: crash course man the people just listen at 2x rumi has got a great voice as you're hearing right now and then after four hours you'll be an expert in india so super <laughs> quick question was uh when you interviewed uh nandan who uh did I say it correctly which is the yeah. founder
0: yep yep
2: uh, you did that in india yeah
0: i did that when i was in the i did that yeah when i was in in india uh, we did it we did it remotely but then i had the chance to follow up with him uh, when I was in Bangalore, actually the the week after that, I think, uh, and spend you know about a half a day with him. Was oh, so his uh, living
2: room? Was it? Uh,
0: was it nice? Was it a good living room? We met in the office, and the communal <laughs> parts of the office were very nice. <laughs> um,
2: the bathrooms,
0: the bathrooms, <laughs> a little bit of work. It was a, a little the, the bit of the individual, small. the individualistic <laughs> elements of the office needed some work. Uh, <laughs> But it was great he's he, he's 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 he's
2: a he's a G he, he's the absolute G he's like uh, in the country's taxi. so uh, well, Rami I'm just curious on oh, yeah. that sorry Trunk how yeah.
1: was your trip to India because uh, I don't know if you grew up going to India as a kid I as like an yeah. adult going like what was it like going with that hat on being like oh, I'm looking at from a business point of view and like different to going when you're twelve years old, like having Lassie in the summertime, you know what
0: I mean? For sure. Yeah. I mean, all these things became real, right? Like they became very real. These things you know you can go read in some Morgan Stanley wealth management report and get excited and say, oh, it's a big market and this, that, and the other. And then, you know, you <laughs> you India's a country of juxtaposition. So then you go on the street and and the guy that's like knocking on your door, kind of pounding you down because he wants you to give him money, give you money, et cetera right in one hand you're saying hey he's like you know can you give me 50 rupees right can you give me 70 rupees right 80 rupees is one us dollar for everybody that's listening right can you give me 80 rupees can you give me 80 rupees and then he's whipping out his smartphone and he has a qr code for you to give him that 80 rupees right so you look and you're like what a country of juxtaposition where there's still these very real problems it's not that he's you know kind of pulling a scam or anything like that it just speaks to you know how how advanced the country actually is which is people on the side of the road that are asking for funds are you know, asking with their smart code a smartphone and a QR code, right? And so there's these wild juxtapositions for how the country actually operates. I, I think the the youthfulness, the optimism, the ambition is certainly next level. Um, you know, India is when you have that many people in a country and it's a poor country and and spaces are are relatively enclosed. And this is not to say that, you know, this is certainly not still the case, but Oftentimes you just, you know, infrastructure is not great. It's dirty. It's, you know, smelly, it's, it's old, et cetera. And I think one thing that was really exciting and interesting to see, and you can only really see this on the ground, is just the sheer level of pride that I'd say India's youth takes in the country. Right. And so like small cultural things of like, if somebody throws, you know, when I was growing up if we went on. You know, a train or railway or something and somebody, you know, threw trash or you know, on the side of the road or, you know, in the car or whatever it was, it's just kind of accepted that, you know, this is how India is, right? But now you actually see, you know, you see signs in English, you see kind of almost cultural shaming of like if you're, you know, creating rubbish, et cetera, <laughs> there is this real, you know, culture and this real vibe, right? Of, you know, of people saying, hey, wait a minute, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't operate it this way, right? Maybe we should operate differently. And so it's a very... It's a very, very different. Um, it's a very different world over there. It's a very different world. As I was sharing earlier, you know, you literally cannot tell if you were talking to a young Indian that's proficient in English on Zoom. You could not tell if they were in San Francisco or they were in Bangalore. Which I think is probably the best microcosm or the best way to explain, you know, what's really going on, you know, over uh, over there. Yeah, love
1: it.
2: And when you see somebody's resume with IIT on it, the Indian Institute of Technology. All you need to know is. This guy, gone to this guy could have gone to Harvard. All you ahead. need to
0: know no is they are one of 10,000 people that passed this standardized test that literally, you know, scores of tens of millions of people take every single year. And, you know, I'm not sure what's more impressive than... Um, IIT
2: is probably more impressive, actually. Uh, I, I, I would put, in my head, I have IIT, like, on par with MIT. Like, that's how I think about it. Yeah, it, it has I to be. Know.
0: It has to be, yeah.
2: So, um, quick uh, quick pivot here on this. Sure. Uh, we're, from india although it's a quick question we gotta do one more india question what's your favorite yeah, indian sure. dish and why is it palak paneer
0: oh that yeah <laughs> that's easy it's any type of paneer that's super easy in <laughs> okay. fact when i was at when I was, at McKinsey, I was traveling to london all the time because i had a project there and i was i was probably hanging out at well i'm curious Below what your take is but i was hanging out at a lot of the locals or at least seemingly the oh, tourist yeah. part at the shum
1: oh yeah home. yeah yeah did you enjoy the
0: <laughs> yeah it's great it's, it's the awesome. best,
1: right? I, I've it's actually just started seeing, I was at someone's house for dinner that, like a few days ago. Twice in three days, I saw the D'Shoun book in there. Yeah. In, and I'm yeah, in New we York. Have it in our, we
0: have it in our house. We it's got a great it.
1: little cooking okay. book, actually. And if you're ever in London, definitely recommend it. I'd also recommend Tayeb's or Lahore Kebab House, one of the kind of OGs, so places trunk. Did you go to any of these when you were there recently? I I,
2: I did not. I I I should have Next asked. Next time. I should have.
1: Yeah, the is definitely. I mean, because I know you were on your Pret diet there because you were uh, making up for that <laughs> hotel. You were yeah, born yeah, out. I uh, yeah. I was uh,
2: staying in Knightsbridge, so I had to save money the other way. Eating on the Shawarma diet and. Uh, and uh, shawarma.
1: <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um. But, uh, so paneer, Paneer's your go-to. Rumi, yes, paneer, yeah, paneer, go. Like, okay. He's like best okay, in God.
0: For sure. Oh Beautiful. yeah, that's the
1: best. All right, Trung, over to you, mate. Because I know we went to talk okay. about bootstrap businesses as well. Yeah, Ramin, thanks so, for breaking that down. That was brilliant, man. Yeah, yeah that was amazing,
2: absolutely. dude. I'll I'll throw two. I'll let Ramin pick here because uh, Ramin sent me a Google Doc. He's v- very meticulous, and uh, he has this idea called tech enabled service businesses as a source of alpha. That's that's a mouthful. So I'm gonna. You can either talk through that, or can you throw us like five bootstrap businesses or three bootstrap businesses that you love. Because what people need to know about Ramin is he, he has a one foot in both worlds, right? Cash flowing, workforce management business that he, he runs, and then the, the the invested in nearly 100 uh uh um, tech companies. So you're vocal about saying, you know, the bootstrap way makes a lot of sense, but you have credibility on that. So actually, why don't we just go with bootstrap? Why don't you talk through your bootstrap philosophy and then some crazy ideas you have that people can yeah. potentially jump
0: on. So maybe, be, yeah, so maybe it be helpful. And the reason I, I sent that doc to you, Chong, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, right? And part of it is because of the hive mind of just, you know, let's say being online and being um, on, on something like Twitter, right? Which is you have these kind of like culture wars worst breakout, right? You have people that are like bootstrap businesses are the way to build businesses. And then you have people that say, no, you're building a bootstrap business. You're just not ambitious as an entrepreneur, right? And then some people say, you know, um cash flow is king and others say no you should be building for enterprise value and there's all these kind of like almost like culture war arguments against one another and what it led me to believe or what what it led me down this path of and you're right i have a foot in both worlds was you know are these businesses actually more different than they are similar right the punchline is today they're incredibly different there's no question about it but what i started thinking about is in the future are they actually you know more similar or are they more different so so this this idea that I have is um, this idea that I've kind of been wrapping a lot in my head is this idea that I think tech I think in a world in which you're kind of looking for alpha, right? Alpha means kind of additional returns, etc., or areas of arbitrage. I think one of the most interesting areas of alpha and kind of generating returns is going to be tech-enabled services businesses. Okay, so why do I believe that? So in 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 software, right, or in SaaS there's this adage, right? That's kind of been taken as just like common knowledge and common uh, common convention, which is if you want to be a billion dollar company, right? You need to get to a hundred million dollars in revenue, right? And this idea uh, was made pretty popular and taken as conventional uh, wisdom by um, the folks at Battery Ventures, right? They created this framework called T2D3, which is triple, triple, double, double, double. So the idea is basically you get to, you know, around a million-ish in uh, annual recurring revenue, uh, and then you follow that trajectory, right? Triple, triple, double, double, double. Then within five-ish years, you're at a hundred million in revenue. Um, you slap a 10x revenue multiple and voila, you're worth a billion dollars, right? So the revenue part makes sense. You you get to a hundred million in revenue, but you know, we've we've taken it as just such common knowledge that, oh, if you're a SaaS company, you know, you can give, you know, a 10x multiple or so, because you know, there's public markets, there's enough of these companies out there, it's efficient enough. But if you really dig underneath as to why do you get a 10x multiple what does that actually mean right i think it's because there's three assumptions that you're principally making about the business so one is stable predictable top line growth right so if you just do the math right you need a company to basically grow at 15 percent year over year for the next decade right to justify kind of paying you know that much ahead right so that's that's the first piece second piece is it's not just about the, you know the actual growth itself it's about the contract business right so there's really good margins right so the business can produce let's say you know, at least 30%, you know, contribution margin, right? Which generates enough cash flow. And then the last one is is kind of similar to the first one, but it's a little bit different, which is endurance, right? So the company is going to be basically around, you know, a decade from now, right? Um, it's either going to have, you know, it's going to be around in its current form, it's going to have adjusted its business model enough. But the bottom line is, you know, the quality of the business has stayed consistent versus having decayed, right? So people typically give, you know, this type of valuation or this, uh, this type of multiple to software businesses, right? SaaS businesses, because they have some characteristics, which really justify those assumptions. So one is all revenue is recurring, right? So you have predictability around it. And the second is the gross margin profile software is really attractive, right? These businesses are 60, 70, 80% gross margin. And so at scale recurring revenue points towards stability, predictability, endurance. Uh, while software gross margins give you know more credence toward this idea of healthy contribution margins right now when you think of most great SaaS businesses right they have always had services businesses attached to them i think that's like the great marketing you know like wazoo of what these companies have done which is they've always had you know implementation services managed services support services et cetera. because it turns out that especially if you're selling in the enterprise or so people don't want to buy just technology for the sake of buying technology they actually want to buy a solution, right? Um, so, like, I mean, so like Salesforce, for example, is a big, has 100%. like a yeah, they,
1: massive They're part. on the
2: ground. They're building you some custom stuff. Yeah, like, Danny, to, AI, to get For example, yeah. if you there want a, to expose a $10 million contract, I will hold your hand. There I we will go. literally fly and hold your hand. Otherwise, you can use the do yourself stuff. Out the but, box,
0: uh, to be fair. Yes, yeah, yeah. The oh, yeah. Salesforce is a perfect example because there's a massive ecosystem of Salesforce consulting firms. Right. And these guys are running around and basically saying, Hey, you know, we're experts in Salesforce and we'll do the work for you. Right. Um, but even internally in Salesforce, there's a massive, you know, consulting or services, et cetera, division. Right. And so despite having, you know, services businesses, having lower, lower margin profiles, right. Not being as recurring, et cetera. You know, by having a small portion of that revenue composition, the SaaS company still got away with saying that, Hey, the entirety of the company, right. Is still a quote unquote technology company, right. Um, and it's because, you know, look, the blended gross margin of these businesses was still gross margin of these businesses was still over 60%, right? So you kind of have this trope of, you know, services or software as a proxy for like quality and valuation, right? Services businesses, you know, you know, scaled services businesses trade at 10x, you know, earnings as opposed to 10x revenue, right? And if you if you kind of really dig into the why, it again kind of comes back to those why's that I was saying below. Margins are lower, business isn't recurring right? So it's more of a leap of faith of, you know, is this stable, predictable, you know, and enduring growth. But then I started thinking, I said, okay, well, what if you create a services business that has the same characteristics as a legacy software company, right? And if you did that, would it get the same valuation as a legacy software company, right? So almost think of like the Coke and Pepsi blind test, right? If I put two businesses in front of you, blindfolded you, right? And one was services and one was software right? Like, would you ascribe the same exact valuation to the both of them if they had all the same underlying characteristics, right? And I think historically, right, you could not have done that. Now I think you can actually do that with AI and with global talent, right? So there was a company that I talked to the other day, Services Business, and they broke down their delivery, right? I won't blow up exactly what they do because I wanted to keep it secretive, but I'll, I'll break down kind of at a high level the way they thought about their delivery, right? Which was basically like they're executing their service. So they broke it down into two modals, okay? So they said, if we had humans do the first part, modal one, and humans do the second part, modal two, we can produce a 40% gross margin business. okay? Then they said, human modal one, AI modal two, we can do 55% gross margin. AI modal one and human modal two, we can do 75% gross margin. AI modal one, AI modal two, we can do 90% gross margin. Now, that was really interesting to me, right? Because what I started thinking about is, okay, if you could do one part of the solution via AI and one part with the right human team, right? We just spent the whole first half of that podcast talking about India. So let's talk about, you know, getting lower cost talent in a place like India and blending it, right? Not just having us talent. Then what you start to end up seeing is, you know, you can end up having a really high gross margin business. And if you think of the nature of those services right which are typically implementation managed services etc right you solve the recurring part right so one of the things that we you know what we learned through covid was software company recurring revenue is actually a lot less recurring than we thought right you were getting on the phone and basically saying hey zoom info if you don't cut your price by half tomorrow i'm churning so it turns out these long-term software contracts were getting flipped off in a, in, in a second. The other thing is when you think of, you know, large enterprise consulting firms, the eccentrics, it turns out that their consulting contracts are significantly longer than software contracts, which are typically one-year contracts. So if you could solve the gross margin and the, and, and the margin profile of the business, and you could solve the recurring revenue part of the business, I actually think you can start to think about services businesses from a valuation perspective, the same way as you could think of traditional software companies. So you know, if you ascribe that idea, I think in the 2010s, we kind of mistook every startup to be a software company. We valued Uber, Airbnb, DoorDash. We valued all of them as pure software businesses. Turns out they were not pure software businesses. I think we might be doing the opposite right now with services businesses. And if we are, there's a lot of alpha sitting underneath the surface. So the right agency services, you know, consulting, et cetera, business that kind of looks like that small, cute flow company on the surface may very well be, you know, tomorrow's unicorn. So, so I no think investment advice.
2: Hold on a second. So Accenture then, for example, not can investment you talk device- that? What, what do you think Go about ahead. Accenture? What do you think about Accenture?
0: Well, Accenture just closed $400 million of um, consulting contracts. Sorry, $100 million of consulting contracts that are focused on AI specifically, right, over the last four months.
2: So you think and- this is super bullish for them?
0: I think it's super bullish for them. Okay. Uh, and, and the reason why is, and it's a, it's a little bit different. I think I think some of the components of what I just talked about definitely apply, right? To them, they're, I mean, they are large, you know, consulting, uh, they are large services businesses. So they can absolutely be tech enabled. They can absolutely be more thoughtful, et cetera. I think the thing, I don't think those businesses are the ones necessarily that will really fall into this, yeah, um, you know, bucket. Um, because I think those are, ser- leg- those are 1.0 services companies right? They've been built with a very different infrastructure and foundation than services companies will be built from today. Smaller businesses that are starting today can be built AI first, remote first, et cetera, but those businesses, well, they'll go through their transformation, but they're not structurally the same as the types of businesses I'm talking about here. The reason those companies will do really well though, is because they are going through a huge, there's a huge tectonic, technological shift the world is going through. So the McKinsey's, the Bain's, the Accentra's, et cetera, the world, they do their best when there is a massive new super cycle that sets off, right? Why? Because every company is asking, well, what does AI mean for us? What is our AI strategy? How are we going to incorporate AI? What does it mean for the landscape that we operate in? What does it mean for our delivery? What does it mean for our consumer products, et cetera, right? So those companies I think will do really well because they're gonna ride a technology shift. I'm, I'm more so speaking to businesses that if you were getting a services business off the ground today, and you were you spent too much time on Twitter, and you got faced with this trope that services business is going to be a small, cute cash flow company, and it's for the non ambitious. Um, I my my sentiment or my thesis is actually I think you can use the data and you can kind of use the profile of how these businesses are constructed to actually refute that claim. No, just
1: trying. Dude, I don't know deep, if you had the direct. No, I say... that... Gone, on,
2: go on. No, I was just going to say, Ramin. So you've been cooking on this just recently. Like, this is like the thing you send me. It's not even, you're not, these are just thoughts you're putting together right now.
0: This is thoughts, yeah. But, and I I think it's because we often, like, what often does not happen when we think about companies. So just think about how common it is to be like, like, if you're investing in a company today, right? How common it is to just assume, oh, it's a tech company, you know, it'll trade at 10x ARR, and, um, you know, so I'll invest at 40x ARR or something because, you know, with scale and growth rate and over a period of time, like even though I'm investing at 40X today, it's on a small number, right? Um, You know, this is like, this is a very classic VC model, right? So a very classic VC model, forget portfolio construction, et cetera, very simple. It's okay, this business is doing 3 million in ARR, maybe I'll give it a, you know, $60 million valuation, right? I'll give it a 20X kind of valuation or so. And the thing I'm betting on is that, you know, this company can do, you know, 60 million in ARR. And at that point in time, it'll terminally trade you know, 10 times. And so there'll be multiple compression. It's not going to trade at the same entry multiple that I gave 20X. It's going to be, let's say 10X. Maybe it'll be at 5X, whatever, right? It'll be something significantly lower on the multiple side. But from the absolute dollars, from a revenue perspective, it's not going to be three. It's going to be more like 30, 60, you know, 300, 600, et cetera. And so the math, right, early on is I did, you know, the company's at 3 million in revenue and I gave it a 20X multiple. So it's valued at 60 million. And hopefully in the future, it's going to do, you know 100 million in revenue and it's going to be a 10x multiple and so it's going to be worth a billion and along the way they're going to raise a bunch more money and so it's going to you know that um, my stake is going to continue to dilute so maybe i own 50 percent, you know of the stake instead of 100 percent of my stake because it will continue to dilute and the end number of all of that is this company will be worth 600 million as opposed to 60 million i made a 10x investment okay. over some period of time three years five years seven years whatever it might be right So I just started thinking of, okay, well, if that's the back of the envelope map that we ascribe, and that's really the back of the envelope heuristic that, you know, many of the most sophisticated investors in the world, you know, do when, when people talk about, Hey, if, if, you know, you can't do the deal on the back of a napkin, you know, don't do the deal. I think they often ascribe it to some philosophical, you know, um, amazingness of how, you know, they've distilled this incredibly complex problem into something super simple. And it's this proof point of just you know very strong um you know uh deduction of logic i think the reality is, is like the math is just not that hard right like the reason you do it on the back of an envelope or, or the back of a napkin is because the math has like you
2: don't need any more space
0: yeah it turns out like you don't actually need more than a napkin <laughs> to say what's the multiple what's the growth rate how much am i going to get diluted like it turns out you can do that on the back of a napkin right um it's not this like amazing like you know Albert Einstein level of um, uh, of synthesis that's going on here. So, I I think if you if you have the thought process that okay you know companies get valued like that then you know you have public markets right you have these large companies in public markets that trade and you can see their valuation. Then I think what you really have to ask yourself is okay well why does a company ultimately get a valuation? A company ultimately gets a valuation because of the amount of future cash flow that it's going to generate. And so when you're giving when you're ascribing you know these shorthand kind of heuristics, like multiples, et cetera, you're making some statement of belief of the cash flow potential of the business, right? Either it's scale, either it's endurance, you know, either it's percentage, like if you put a dollar in how many, you know cents are going to come out from a cash flow perspective. And so if you just take those, you know those underlying variables and you separate all the noise of kind of narratives and marketing and, you know, Like common knowledge of if it's a SaaS company, it's going to get a 10X multiple, whatever it is. And you actually think from first principles, you know, I think there was really good reason before why a scaled services company would trade at 10X profit versus 10X revenue, right? I think software and SaaS, and these were really, you know, these were truly, you know, fundamental shifts to the underlying business models, recurring revenue, much higher margins, et cetera. But I think a lot of these services companies are going to be powered by the same things now. And if that's the case, then it really begs the question that, well, wait a minute, you know, why can't, why wouldn't these companies be valued the exact same way? And so I think we, like I said earlier, I think we made the mistake in the last decade of saying Uber, DoorDash, Airbnb, every single one of these just valued as software, 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 software. And turned out these are not software businesses. They have a lot of software, but there's nothing, you know, software about a guy bringing you your pizza. I mean, that is a real-world problem, right? Uber, right? Delicious real-world problems. Is a delicious real-world problem. <laughs> Uber is a real-world problem, right? I mean, these are real-world problems. They're enabled by technology, but they are real-world problems that have very, very different cost structures, very different you know, economic outcomes. And I think that a lot of these consulting businesses, services businesses, et cetera, that are being built today will look a lot more like the 1.0 SaaS companies that were built in 2008 2009 2010 because of ai because of global talent etc and so if you look in public markets and you say that well those companies trade at 10 times revenue what's the argument for why these companies can't trade at 10 times revenue and i think that's the alpha right that's that's the zone where it turns out that if you're building you know and then if we take it one level deeper right if these businesses are actually well capitalized so let's talk about the bootstrapped versus venture thing right well it turns out that if you own 50 percent of it or 100 of it or so right? Versus owning 10% as a VC-backed founder, right? Your company can be one-tenth the size. I think there's going to be a lot of founders that are running around, you know, creating, you know, 10 to $50 million exits for themselves that are just going to be building incredibly thoughtfully capitalized companies that are just well-run and well-operated with small teams because of AI and global talent. Like, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be really interesting how many of these businesses, you know, are actually going to take off and be you know, much bigger and much, you know, much better outcomes than what traditionally you would have thought of in in these types of companies.
1: Well, Ramin, you've obviously built a similar company in this space, right? So, and I don't know if when you started that you had this frame around it, or if this is developed later around being able to create a more scalable sort of uh, service offering. Um, yeah. But curious to get your thoughts on like actual categories of consultant service businesses that this could work for beyond the ones you might have mentioned like if for, yeah. for a smaller business entrepreneur meaning not a public market and we're not trying to invest in in someone we're saying we want to start something like this what are the
0: sort of categories that you you'd be looking at for this yeah so this is a this is another thing I think that's really interesting about like bootstrap businesses or services businesses etc. I think people often take um this very strong concept from technology of, you know, competitive landscape and uh and so on and so forth and 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 try to ascribe it right to these types of businesses. You know, we operate, you could say one segment of our business is in the staffing space, right? Finding people, placing people, et cetera. There's over 250 companies in the US that do over a hundred million dollars a year in revenue that are staffing companies, right? And, and so when I think about it, law I actually don't even think of like, is there a certain category specifically that this can get ascribed to? What I think of is you chase a really large market and you just build a better business, right? I mean, like your grandfather's staffing business, you know, has physical branches in, in the different states. Well, it turns out that that's really expensive, right? Versus working online or versus working in remote. Um, so I think this applies to all you know consulting services yeah, there's some categories that are better than others but i i think that this applies this fundamental concept applies you know to any one of these you know services across process. the board Fair across the board. one of the ideas that i'm excited about right now though and i'm curious to get your guys' take on it is um do so you see all this hype and wave obviously around ai right and i think ai is different than crypto like i do you think it's real you know we're seeing it's real we see that there's real tangible business value Um, It's also not a big leap of faith, right? You see automation, et cetera, inside companies, et cetera, anyways. But I'm not convinced that you can make a bunch of money startup investing right now in AI. I think actually a lot of the economic value is going to accrue really, really big players. And I think you're going to have a graveyard of a bunch of companies that raised 10, 20, $50 million. And it turns out there's nothing enduring about those businesses. Um, Where I do think you can make money though, is in a, you know, certainly using AI in your services, business, etc. But if you were thinking about the automation, in the AI space specifically, I think somebody's going to build a really interesting pick and shovels consulting firm specifically targeted around AI. Um, And I I think this is actually where I would think of how do you apply these ideas? Because you would get, you'd kind of like kill two birds with one stone. So one is, you know, you would be, Propagating and helping companies think about AI, you know, diagnose, you know, their, their, um, their companies, give them the roadmap on how AI or automation can help their organizations, um, you know, actually provide a game plan on how those organizations should incorporate uh, AI, you know, the business value will generate, you know, potentially build plugins, you know, deploy products, right, et cetera. And then ongoing maintenance, right? Of like, what is the AI stack? So things will continue to break. Automations will continue to need to be fixed. You'll need help desk, support, et cetera. And so I think somebody can build a really, really good AI consulting firm or an AI automation consulting firm um, that really helps businesses and, and kind of grabs onto this tailwind. But at the same time, I think what they can do is they can take the, like a massive amount of advantage of what we were just talking about by incorporating all those practices into their own consulting firm itself. This is so meta. <laughs> this is, this is it. Right? Hold
2: on. Let me summarize for the listeners. Romine is proposing... You create a consulting firm to help companies transitioning to AI or they want AI in their technology stack. You're going to help them. But the consulting firm you're building is going yeah. to be run by AI.
0: The consulting <laughs> firm you're building is going to be, yes, yeah, so some part of it certainly is going to be automated, run by AI, etc., but it's going to be run in the way that we were talking about kind of the prior thesis, right? It's going to be run with the right blend of onshore, offshore, and AI. And so, you know, you can get that kind of like value accretion, right. Or valuation, right. Of a legacy 1.0 technology business. And, and why not? Right? Like if, if ultimately that kind of business is doing a couple hundred million dollars in revenue and it's doing it at 30, 40%, you know, 50% EBITDA, for example, right. Which sounds outlandish to think about, but I, I don't actually think is all that outlandish when you like think of the bath. Well, why wouldn't that company, you know, why could that company not get valued? As, as we value kind of public SaaS companies today. I mean, a lot of the SaaS companies that we value today are, in, in my opinion, to be honest, they're monikering as technology companies. It's really a bunch of services slapped on with like some tech, right? And there's a reason why their gross margins are like 50%, 40%, right? They're not actually software businesses.
2: This is the most alpha we might have ever had from the business go. building front.
1: <laughs> well, well, look, you've done the, it, man. The, that's yeah, the thing as well, that's to be fair. Thing. So yeah, sorry, gone. No, just to you, that-
0: you had asked. Bilal, you had said, you know, was that a realization I had had? It was not a realization I had had at the outset. It was a realization I had had by continuing to see how cash flow generative these businesses are. How do you actually operate them well, right? And if you think of them from first principles, and by having kind of a toe in both worlds, if you think of them from first principles, right, um, you know, what are what are people? One of the questions I always try to ask. I, I don't. I don't pretend to have the answers like to all these questions, but at least one question I usually try to ask is. What is somebody, if somebody was on the outside, what does somebody not understand, you know, about your space, about your world, right? That you may understand by function of just being in it and operating within it, right? And I I think if you think of the parallels of how businesses are valued on the outside or some of the advantages or some of the characteristics for why people ascribe, you know, such high valuations, you know, to other companies, right? I think a lot of those can actually be carried in and built in um, into these businesses. You know, I... There's a lot of, just in the HR space, there's a lot of companies that have started these kind of like job board marketplaces, right, et cetera, and um, or kind of ancillary stuff like that. And they get these crazy valuations and, and they even get bought at crazy prices. And I always scratch my head because I'm like, you know, you're literally doing the same thing everybody else is doing. You're calling it ARR. It's not ARR, right? It's, it's basically transactional revenue. Um, And look, maybe this starts to go down now that we're like out of like Zerp land. But, you know, it, it, it never really made much sense to me because you would see a service, you would see an old school business doing basically the same thing that just didn't have as much polish on how they were talking about it. Not that they were doing anything fundamentally different. Literally, they were doing the same exact thing. They just weren't as polished in how they were talking about it. And the valuations were just so, I mean, those companies were getting valued at 20 times revenue and these value, these businesses are getting valued at six times even though. And you look at that and you're saying, somebody is wrong here, right? Like the spread is not 6x EBITDA to 20x revenue, right? Maybe this is not 20x revenue and maybe it's more like 5x revenue and maybe this isn't, you know, six times EBITDA, maybe it's more like six times revenue. But there is a spread here. And whenever there's that large of a spread, somebody, there is enough volatility to take a side of a trade and somebody is going to be very right in that trade and somebody is going to be very wrong in that trade. And that's that's kind of where the thought process of this idea of tech-enabled businesses as a source of alpha came up. Love it. Frung, anything else
1: on that one?
2: I, I, I didn't grasp until I heard... Uh, I, I scanned the document this morning, but uh, Ramin, you, you have a convert. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but somebody should. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was going to say it. Uh, did you... Uh, the, the only thing I tagged onto what Blah asked was any other okay maybe you put this uh, tech uh service enabled idea aside just bootstrap in general you're always slinging me ideas is there anything top of mind on the bootstrap side that uh yeah. you like i um, wish somebody would just do this
0: yeah i think um i i i think there's like a really so in the same framing i've been thinking up to your point so bootstrapped ideas yes but also just like what are ideas that ai can't disrupt Okay. Right. It's like one of the things I'm like, I, I see on the horizon is just a lot of these businesses that look good today in, in two, three years, right? It, they may become really challenged, right? So like, I think a lot of these services businesses will end up having to go way, way more upstream, or they'll have to have like a lower fidelity offering, right? Because margins will will definitely get cut, right? So one of the things I've been thinking about is, okay, well, what's a business, you know, what's, what's a business, what's an interesting business that AI can't disrupt? Um, and I think people are I think people are underestimating how big community businesses can become. And so I think community businesses are any kind of passionate base of specific members. So um let's take kind of like an entrepreneur organization, for example, right? Um, Vistage, right, which is like a CEO consulting group. They have close to fifty thousand members globally. Right? And they charge ten thousand dollars a year. That business is doing five hundred million dollars in revenue, right? I think at like thirty or forty percent EBITDA. YPO is the same, right? YPO has like forty thousand members, right? Same thing. They're charging ten thousand. EO Entrepreneurs Organization, right? So I think somebody has an opportunity to build a really great version of like YPO or Vistage, et cetera, but for a more you know modern entrepreneur. Chief tried to do this, right? And they they're 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 doing it, and they're focused specifically on women um, and they've raised, you know, like a billion dollar valuation, et cetera. But again, I think those, you know, those types of businesses are, are, they're hard to be venture backed, not because of the size uh, but because you can't have a community of like 50,000 people, right? Like by definition, the community, like it has negative network effects, right? The larger the community gets the the less valuable it actually is. So I think the sweet spot is something in the zone of like, five to 10,000 or so. But I think if you can find a really dedicated niche, right, of types of an archetype of people, you know, and charge 10 to 20 grand a year. So clearly, right, it's a a heavy price point. And so it needs to be, you know, either very, very skewed on the hobbyist scale, it needs to be very heavily skewed on the business value scale, et cetera. But I've been interested in looking at what are different types of communities that you can build with this kind of sweet spot of like 5,000 people, no more, no less. Right, um, and you're and you're charging anywhere from call ten to thirty thousand, you know, uh, in there, and I think that kind of business over a decade can be, you know, can be worth two hundred fifty to five hundred million dollars, like comfortably. Yeah, uh, and so I think there's a lot of different categories of communities that that could be interesting. The entrepreneur one is one that comes off the head because there's there's two archetypes of YPO and Vistage that have become, you know, four or five hundred million dollar revenue businesses, right, off of taking that kind of broadest you know, version of, of that community itself. But I think you could hyper verticalize. You can do it for D 2 C founders, SaaS founders, right. Um, you know, legacy businesses, whatever it might be. Right. And then take that same archetype and think about other communities or so. Um, that could be really interesting bootstrap businesses. I think those are, by the way, the perfect example of businesses that most VCs would look at and be like, this is some small, cute, like meetup kind of thing on a Saturday afternoon. And, and uh, over a decade's period of time, they can just be absolute behemoths.
1: I think, Ramin, what you just described there is a great example. Instead of just having 50,000, you could also have like clusters within that. And maybe yes, the, the way you described was like a verticalized version for D2C founders only, agency founders only, etc. cetera, SaaS founders. But I think, like, our, you know, Sam Parr's doing it for Hampton. I think he's trying to take a few of those clusters. I don't know if you'd put that in the same bucket, but it sounds similar to me from what he's told me about it and maybe in a i think the price point is probably similar as well five to ten k i don't know exactly
0: but i think what do you think think of that approach that's what we like the cluster yeah yeah i think the clusters is actually where like the real value is because i think in these businesses there's really a there there is a inverse network effect problem right and so i think if you from the outset if you select an archetype of people that are too broad right then you basically i think have to be ypo you yeah. have to be, you have to get to massive scale right of just 50,000 people or so um otherwise you know you're not going to be able to like you're not going to be able to generate the level I think of impact that would be interesting in a business like this and so it it, it, it like everything comes back to the math right so like if you're a if you're a vc backed founder and by the time of exit you own 10% of the company versus let's say you're a bootstrap founder and you own 100% of the company Neither is right or wrong, right? But 10% versus 100% means your business needs to be 10x as large, right? To get the same cut, right? Yeah. So I think if you take the, um, you know, the the YPO Vistage type route, or let's say the Hampton type route, right? I think that will be a great business and it'll be a huge business. But I think you just have to have a lot of people. And when you have a lot of people, it's a tough business to run, right? Um. And so I I would imagine that like, yeah, you know, and, and, and I don't know any of the insights of their business, but I would imagine demand is not really their problem at all. I think the, the real challenge in that business is how do you continue to make sure that the experience is actually really good, right? Yeah, and that it's, it's
1: worth the 10K a year or whatever. That it's worth the 10K well, k year, year. The idea of the clusters makes more sense because you can, you can specifically group people together and say, you're an e-commerce D2C founder with 1 million in revenue, you're trying to get to 5 or 10. Now we're going to put you up with people who maybe a group of 20 people or 50 people and then you can bring in people that specifically done that before and help them actually achieve the kind of common goals whereas but yeah anyways yeah, I, I do I do like that idea and I, I just as you're saying that I was also thinking of when we think of entrepreneurship kind of groups we often think about like the tech people because that's kind of our world but if you think of like dentists or like True. medical like those guys are business owners as well they have their own set of needs and problems they're often doing multiple millions a year um but it's very different they're not going to be necessarily learning stuff from like a SaaS founder in the same way that someone else might be so i think that's a really interesting idea
0: that's that's why i think what you have to chase and that's why i think like if you think of who is the intended user itself and why i think it's better to think about it this way is because like let's say you went after dennis for example right i think i think your goal would be not just to be another young professional uh, network, you know, for dentists, I think what you would be striving for is like, this is the one zone where if you're an interesting dentist, like you are a part of this community. And that's what I think actually allows you to charge 20000 30000 right? Et cetera. Because the value prop has to be commensurate with the price point, right? People will go buy a Louis Vuitton bag and they'll go buy a Walmart bag, right? So has the same functional utility. Why do people buy a Louis Vuitton bag? Because they're ascribing some sort of, you know, they're ascribing some sort of value to it. Brand value, recognition, vanity, right? Feeling good about yourself, whatever it is, right? It's not like, it's not right or wrong. It's just, it's it's a fact. Right? They're paying. The truth is in the fact they're paying for it. The, so truth, yeah. isn't, the truth is in the fact that they're paying, right? So I, I actually think that, you know, I think both models can work. I think if you're, let's say Hampton, I think you go for the YPO or the EO or Vistage kind of model. I think you have to have, lots of people to get big I think if you were the self- storage you know Hampton or self- storage YPO or whatever I think you could make a legitimate case to charge people thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year if you had the right archetype of self storage founders now you probably don't have that you don't you definitely don't have numbers from a number of people perspective but I'd actually argue it's probably better right like if you only had a thousand or two thousand people it's a way easier business to run logistically right um and from a value prop perspective, I think the value prop you can describe or you can give to people really punches above its weight, right? So I, I like. I think people are sleeping on communities. I think they can be a lot bigger than they are. Um, uh, it feels funny to say people are sleeping on communities because I feel like there's a contention of Twitter that all they do is talk about communities. I don't think they're quite thinking about it <laughs> the right way. Um, yeah. It's a very different, like, oh,
1: we're making a community for basketball fans on Discord or something. this. I right, think that's right. what a lot of people
0: thought about in yeah, the last few the, years. Yeah. Or like solopreneur kind of yeah. like, hey, you know, here are my productivity tips and I'm making, you know, a hundred thousand a month or a hundred thousand a year. Great. That's, that's yeah. great. But I think if, I, I think this is, um, I think this is an interesting idea because I, it actually, I think it speaks to a little bit of the culture war between PCs and, and bootstrappers, which is this idea of like a lifestyle business. Right. So the trope on like if it's bootstrapped or you're not raising a bunch of money, et cetera, is your ambitions are actually not. Yeah, that I hate that phrase. Right. And I actually think it's the inverse here, which is I think you can actually shoot really, really big and I think you can retain a whole bunch of the value that you actually create by both picking an idea that's kind of quote unquote venture scale, but then on the other side being thoughtful on how you uh, on how you capitalize it.
2: Yeah, the Love negative it. network effect is fascinating. I, I I never thought about that. Uh, that that's my only comment on this because I I know I dropped out again, which is a an every episode thing. I don't that's know. That's the we,
1: tradition, Ramin. We got. Rami.
2: So now we add, laws uh, when, have to drop off. when my Canadian internet cuts out, we just we add some funny music now, like some Indian <laughs> music. You, you, need, you like, need
0: Indian. You need reliance yeah, GF ha, internet. I need, clearly,
2: I need that. i um, bani. Uh, internet connection.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: Trung. anything else before we wrap up? I know we've kept you here for longer than we originally said. No, that said was amazing, main, so the, the amount of
2: cooking that was going insights. on, man. Thank you so much, man. That was awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah I loved absolutely. it. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to do this anytime. So hit me up, and I love jamming on these things. So hopefully, it's helpful and interesting for everybody. That's awesome. Oh,
2: let's plug your newsletter. So oh, in the yeah. trenches, so we got to get yes. people. to, If you're still thank here, you. we should sure point at the beginning. That's my fault. We'll put them in there. So, the we'll the put show, it in the show
0: notes too. No, yeah. no issues at all. I and and um. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, hopefully it's helpful or interesting to people. I just, I, you know, I started actually writing on Twitter a lot because it was like internal therapy of running a business. I think running a business is like not, it's not easy by any stretch. Uh, There are some days you feel like you're going to take over the world. There are some days you feel like you're going to go bankrupt. Some days you think about both of those in the same day, right? And every kind of emotion that oscillates in between. And so one of the things that I just started getting frustrated about online is you you just read a lot of this like pithiness. Right, these like very very high level, you know, hundred thousand foot pieces of advice, et cetera. Uh, no, you don't do that. You 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 <laughs> actually don't do that. You do a really good job actually of surfacing like crazy wild stories and giving them to people in accessible ways. All right, I'll I think take just, that. there's too many, um, there's too many of these just like very broad, you know, you know broad kind of constructs, which I think if you actually really double click means somebody is super elevated and they just see the entire world at this amazing meta level. And they've just abstracted these insights, um, incredibly, or it's just people that haven't done it before and they don't know what they're talking about. And, and unfortunately I think it's like, create a
1: product people want, you know, Oh, well done. Yeah. We'd never thought of that
0: before, but most of the time it's just that level. I think 99% are kind of in that, in that ladder bucket. Right. And so I, I started doing this as kind of like, you know, selfishly doing it, but then, you know, I, Part of, part of the reason I like investing while operating, right, is you just meet so many interesting people. You talk through so many different businesses, you learn a lot, et cetera. And, you know, especially as I would, you know, invest in, you know, to different um, companies and such and then see their journeys, right, and see how these companies did well, how they didn't do well, all the difficult decisions you make all along. Um, it turns out that I think a, a lot of the knowledge that you can accrue actually comes from this idea, which I firmly believe in, which is get in the trenches, right? So actually do the work, right? And learn by doing don't learn by reading, listening, you know, observing, etc. That's helpful to a degree, but nothing simulates actually being in the trenches or being in the weeds. And the reason for that is it turns out that, you know, business is intellectually not that difficult. (coughs) Sorry about that. Um, I'll reset up. It turns out that business is not that intellectually difficult, right? Ideally, You, you know, put something out into the world and you charge people for it and money comes in. Ideally you spend a little bit less than that money that's coming in and you make some money, right? Like intellectually, it's not that difficult. The difficult part is the emotional part of business, right? So if you haven't built a company or operated a company, you don't know what it feels like for a deal to fall apart at the last minute, for a customer to, you know, sack you unnecessarily or yell at you or whatever it might be, for an employee to, you know, lie, manipulate, cheat or steal. Uh, to have to lay off someone, right, uh, and affect their family, um, to, you know, have a partner kind of abuse your trust, right, or put their interests above yours. You you can read about these things all day long. You don't actually know how it's going to feel until it happens to you, right? So anyways, this is a very, very long-winded way of saying it. I started writing this newsletter partly because it was on internal therapy. It seemed like a lot of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people, listen uh, read it today, like it. And it seems like it helps people and and that you know brings me a lot of uh, happiness as well. And so if you are building a business and um, you know, one guy's advice or, or kind of battle scars can help you through your journey, then then um, I'm biased. But I, I think it's a great newsletter to subscribe to. So where it's, should it's, they it's go to cool. sign up, Romain? You just go to my Twitter, it's super simple. Um, you can either just go to my first name last name.com, so Rominesheth.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can go to my Twitter and it's uh, it's right there in the bio. Okay. Click
1: in the show notes because we'll have it there as well. Go sign up for that. Ramin, appreciate You're you coming on the for... show, dude. Absolutely smashed it on that. Uh, really appreciate it. we got to do it again sometime, get an update of how the business is going. A huge congrats to you building that business, man. I know how hard it is to get to that level of scale. Bootstrap especially is like most people don't ever get there. So congrats, dude. I appreciate it, guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, All right, that man. was awesome. Thanks, Speak buddy. Soon.